title of today's message is Spreading Grace. It's going to be the last in our grace series that we've been going through for the last several weeks. We're going to be starting out in the Gospel of John chapter 1 if you want to turn there in your Bibles. I've recently heard a Chinese saying that on the surface seems pretty innocent, but if you really break it down and look at what the, the Chinese are trying to say with their Eastern mindset, it's actually a curse. And the saying is, may you live in interesting times. And the idea focuses on the word interesting, meaning in order to be interesting, you have to be going through some very hard times, something that is very tumultuous or worrisome or so confusing that you have to devote a lot of your time to find meaning or truth in what is happening. Well, I hate to say it, but you and I are now living in interesting times. Today we live in a day and age where truth is a word that has lost much of its meaning in our culture. Instead of truth being something that is verifiable, something that, that we can hang our hat on, something that is, is provable or trustworthy, the concept of truth has been relegated to an individual opinion irregardless of what is factual. And it's one of the main reasons why we have so much crisis in our country right now. It's because we have no idea what's true anymore. All the news media tells us, and it doesn't matter who you listen to, all they're doing is telling us slanted stories about what's going on. There's little to no journalistic integrity anymore. It's all about who can get the biggest headline, who can get the, the biggest splash on your screen or the, the most social media likes. And the more salacious it is, the more it sells and the more people want to believe in it, even if it turns out to be a lie. And what that has done in our culture is produce a divide between those who are more maybe liberal in their thinking and those, of, of the, uh, those who are more conservative in their thinking. And the problem is whenever we get challenged as humans, we react offensively, don't we? We build a wall around us to defend ourselves. And what most of us have done in our world is build a huge wall around our opinions and we start calling it truth. And we're refusing to talk to those who don't believe as we do. Instead, we try to lob a truth grenade over the top of our wall and hope it hits those on the other side and hope it, that it changes their mind. But this is not what God desires for you and me. This is not what God desires for anyone on this earth. You see, God doesn't want our source of truth to be Fox News. It doesn't, he doesn't want us to get our facts necessarily from MSNBC or CNN or even our local newspaper. God himself wants to be our source of truth. You may have heard me say this over and over again in sermons, but truth is reality as seen through the eyes of God. And who can we go to to be a better expert on what is true than the God who sees all, knows all, and can do all? And the opening of John's gospel reminds us of this and what is special about Jesus. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Father God, I ask, Lord, as we complete this series on grace, that you would bless us with an ability to see and understand and appreciate 
all the facets of what grace means to us. Lord God, I ask, Father, that you pour within us an understanding, supernaturally, Father, of exactly the power that is available for us to live. Father God, I ask this in your name. Amen. This morning is the final week of our four-week series on God's grace. We should learn... And we should learn from Jesus about the power of a message spoken in grace, peace, and truth. Within this movement called Christianity, there seems to be two camps of people. We talked a little bit about it in Sunday school this morning. One side of, this, of the camps in Christianity really emphasizes grace. They really talk about the grace of God. They really talk about the forgiveness of God. They really talk about just how God wants to love us, take us in his arms, and, and just forgive us for everything we can ever do. The other side emphasizes truth and obedience and says that you need to be truth, you need to focus on obedience and doing the right thing all the time. And if you don't do that, then you can't expect God's grace to, to have any effect on you. But Jesus shows us that apart from grace, we really can't speak about truth. We really can't speak about obedience because apart from the truth, we're really not speaking words of grace. They're very intertwined with one another and dependent on one another. And the peace of blessing of God comes when grace and truth are joined. And in Jesus, we see our perfect example. If you look at verse 16 in John chapter 1, the New Revised Version quotes it this way. It says, From his fullness we have received, or we have all received, grace upon grace. However, when you read it in the NIV, the NIV substitutes one blessing after another for grace upon grace. And why do I bring this up? It's because I think that John was searching for a way to communicate that God's grace is multi-layered. C.S. Lewis said it this way, John 1.16 means to come farther up and farther in to grace. And one of the dangers of our modern understanding of grace is this. When we limit grace to merely a ticket to heaven... There is no farther up and farther in with God, either in this life or the next. In other words, why do we come to the shores of God's grace only to dip our toes in the ocean? It would be like, people don't understand God's grace. Like if you've never seen an ocean, you don't understand the ocean. I remember the, the first time when I saw an ocean... I had read about it in books. I had seen it in documentaries. But when I first pulled into the parking lot to see an ocean, I was just amazed at what I saw, but I didn't stop there. I got out of the car. I opened the door. I got out of the car, and I looked, and I smelled the salt air. I heard the waves lapping in, and I, I heard the seagulls crying out. But I didn't stay just in the parking lot. I walked on the beach, and I got to have even more of a powerful experience of what the ocean meant. Then to experience it firsthand, I took off my shirt and my sandals, and I dove in to the ocean. 
But most people only want experiencing God's grace from the car. But diving in is how you and I should approach the grace of God. We can't just come to church, punch our spiritual time card, and think we've experienced what God's grace is all about. We need to dive in. You see, the Sunday-only Christianity makes us come only with a religious mindset. And I don't want that for us. Grace isn't just a wading pool for us to splash around in on Sunday and then walk away from it until next Sunday. It's an ocean that we exist within 24-7. James 4-6 reminds us, but God gives more grace. That's why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God is grace. And that means he is sharing more and more and more of himself with us each day as we humble ourselves. You see, James is speaking from experience and not just theory. Remember who James was that wrote the book of James. He's Jesus' half-brother. James thought Jesus was nuts when he walked upon the earth with his 12 disciples. You remember his unbelief ran so deep within him that the, him and the other brothers grabbed Mon and went to take up Je and went to grab Jesus and lock him into whatever kind of loony bin they had back then. They thought he went crazy. But after Jesus rose from the dead, James discovered the multi-layered grace of God when he learned to humble himself again and again and again to the point where he wrote it down for us to remember and us to learn from. And when we humble ourselves, we position ourselves for greater grace and the greater blessing of God's presence in our lives. And when God's grace exists richly within you, the person of God himself, he brings everything else with him, including his peace, his strength, his power, his blessing and his protection, and his holiness so we can live an upright life before him. Circling back upon where we started this morning, he brings one of the most important parts of his character, and that is truth. And when we humble ourselves to receive the grace of God, we create an atmosphere of peace that allows us to speak and live and share the truth because it's filled with grace. But grace is a central ingredient here. Truth apart from grace is rooted in pride or the need to be right. Grace done God's way shares truth because we honestly care about the life of others. I want you to consider something. 2 Timothy chapter 3.16, and this will be one of the scriptures we study next week about when we talk about um, start getting into our Christianity 101. But 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is God-breathed. That Greek word is very literal in that. It's theonoustos. Theo meaning God, noustos meaning breathe. And why is that important? Because the truth of God's word gives us life. I want you to think about this. When God breathes, dead things become alive. If you go all the way back in the beginning, we all started out as dirt. We all started out as a lump of clay until God breathed life into it. The disciples were all fear-filled and stuck in their religious mindset until in the end of John, Christ breathed the Holy Spirit into them. 
We all experience the fullness now of divine power and divine grace when the Holy Spirit breathes into us with tongues of fire. And Paul understood the importance of this fresh breath from God. Paul started all of his letters to the church praying grace and peace over them because he understood our ongoing need for both. And another thing I need you to see this morning is that Paul gave the congregation grace and peace in how he started his letters because they were his to give. Remember Jesus' instructions to the 12 disciples. He told them, whatever house you enter, let your first words be peace to this house. You see, Jesus had something more in mind than just a nice greeting. He wasn't just saying, hey, how you doing? How's the weather? He wasn't just trying to, to break the ice. Jesus understood the power of the divine presence that you and I are supposed to carry. And Jesus knew that a greeting of peace could rest upon the people as that very presence of God entered into the house with them. We forget about that sometimes, that we are ambassadors of the, of the kingdom of God. And when we walk into a situation, we carry all the weight of that kingdom with us if we will only believe that. But the Bible is very clear about that. And the grace and peace that Jesus instructed the disciples to give was something real, something tangible, something that could be refreshing to their souls. It was like they carried in a huge bucket of cold water to people who are dying of thirst and were able to give that to them. And Paul learned this when he wrote to the churches of God scattered across the Roman world. And his first words were always grace and peace. You look at every epistle he ever wrote, he began it with grace and peace. And Paul wasn't trying to give what he didn't have. Paul possessed grace and peace through the power of the Holy Spirit living within him. And he was able to give that away. He had such a surplus, he allowed the river of living water to flow through him and, and, and rest upon everyone else around him. In many cases, Paul was a founder of the church in which he wrote. He wrote to encourage that, was, that which was good in these churches and offer correction whenever they needed help. Now, when I say the word correction, what automatically happens in our mind? We start to build a wall. Uh-oh, he's about to get into my business somehow. That's, that's just a natural reaction when, when we start talking about correct, correction or living right before God. But here's a question for you. How often do we look upon correction and teaching as sources of the peace and grace of God? A moment ago, we were talking about God breathing new life into us by taking up residence in our heart. And if God were to become human again and ask to stay at your house next Saturday night, how many of you would just leave everything the way it is? Or how many of you would finally get down on your hands and knees and scrub those baseboards? How many of you would pull out the finest linen? How many of you would go out and manicure your yard? How many of you would just make sure everything was absolutely perfect for the God of the universe to come in and feel comfortable in your home? See, but that's what correction is. Correction is making our life, 
our soul and our spirit the most comfortable for the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, to dwell in. So he can bring, this isn't just so God's comfortable, but he also wants to bring in his blessing and his power and his peace and his plan to bear in our lives. And that's why God's grace and peace should be prized above almost everything else in our lives. But there are some obstacles to grace. There are some things that need God's correction. In order for God to come into our lives to rest there, to abide there, and to be there at all times, we should examine ourselves in two areas. And the first, thing, first example of something that will limit God's grace is bitterness. In Hebrews 12, 15, it says that, See that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it may become defiled. You see, bitterness is an obstacle of grace because bitterness causes our heart to draw inward and shrivel up and avoid even grace itself. When we hold bitterness against someone else, it's like you take a pool, it's like you take one of those inflatable pools, you let the air out and you crumble it all up and make it about this big when it used to be this big and allow other people to exist within it and, and be refreshed by it. You see, bitterness says, I want to be alone. I want to be alone in my pain. The passage of Hebrews warns us that apart from the grace of God, our bitterness and unsettled scores seep deeply into those around us. And our personal bitterness can and will defile others. We desperately need God's grace to endure suffering, even in the everyday slights of life. In our pain, when we refuse grace, we will defile many. All the while, we think we are suffering in, in silence and solitude, unaware that when one member of a family suffers, the whole body is in pain. Remember I said a minute ago that when we carry the grace of God, we can bless an entire household? Well, think about what the opposite of that will do. It's the same principle in the spirit. The next example of things that can limit God's grace is scarcity. The second opponent of grace is my fear that grace is a zero-sum game. In other words, that grace somehow becomes prepackaged in fixed amounts. Like we get a hundred of grace one day, and that's what we have to live with throughout our entire life. And we forget the scripture that assures us that his mercy endures forever and comes in limitless supplies. You know, when it comes to grace and forgiveness and all these things that we talk about, we kind of can be like a sparrow sitting in a tree and thinking that his little small breasts will consume all the air around him, and therefore he doesn't want to share it with anyone else. But that's what happens when we allow fear within us. Fear always asks us, who knows if I'm going to be able to find more? Who knows if I, if, if, if I give another person grace, if I'll have enough for myself? Yet scripture reminds us that if the Father clothes 
the flowers of the field and feeds the birds of the air, how much more will he provide the life-giving freedom of grace? You see, grace is not just a wading pool. It's not just that, that example I used a moment ago of those inflatable pools we can splash around in. Grace is like the Mississippi flowing through the grace of God or throwing from the uh, throne of God. So, do we wish grace and peace upon others? Hopefully the answer is yes. The second question, do we have it to give? And Paul's words were not only about receiving, his greetings were examples of what we have to do to those around us and those who God places in our path each and every day. Jesus had it very straightforward. Jesus was always very succinct with his teaching. And trust me, I'm trying to become more like Jesus. But Jesus said it very simply. Freely you have received, therefore freely give. And if we have received any grace from God, if we have received any forgiveness from God, if we have received any power from God or healing from God, then we should be ready to give it to others. We have that grace to give. And don't worry, it won't run out. Paul's famous words in Romans 8, chapter 1, or chapter 8, verse 1, says that therefore there is no now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. These were not words that he claimed exclusively for himself. Paul was speaking these over them who were listening to his letter. Many believers have quoted this verse on their own behalf in order to fight off guilt and condemnation over things that they have done or, or a dark night of the soul that, that they have to remind themselves that there is no condemnation for me anymore. But how often have we quoted them on behalf of others? How often have we quoted them over the top of somebody we're praying for? That God, this person needs to become happy again because your word says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This needs to be a prayer and something we spread to others and not just hold in to ourselves. Because if God has given us peace in any area of our lives, we can give that peace as well. He doesn't just give us victory, grace, and peace for our benefit, but so we can be a source of it for others. You know, one person here in the church may have, have learned the secret of contentment with, um, and having peace with financial matters. You need to share that with somebody else. Another may have learned how to place everyday fears at the feet of Jesus. You need to help teach somebody else that gift. Do we ever consider that the peace that we received in our walk with God might be the very thing that we teach others? He teaches us to be blessings, not just to hoard it to ourselves. And if when you think that way, it totally puts our past and our trials and hardships into perspective, doesn't it? When you ask God, why am I going through this right now? Why did I have to have such a hard life? Why did I have to have that, that messy divorce? Why, why did I have to go through that cancer diagnosis? Why did I have to, to be scared all the time? Why do I have to be broke all the time? But now you've brought me over to the other side. Now you can be that blessing from others. You know, you can't have a testimony without a test. 
And if you've gone through any of that, I say, awesome. Now go and share that with others. Freely as you have been given, now go freely give. Our everyday lives are no different from the times in which Paul wrote his letters. Words of grace and peace are not just mere formalities, not just a nice way to start a letter. They're ours to give others. You and I, we have something to give. You can give those people who are needy whatever they need from the kingdom of God as one of, of, one of God's ambassadors. The world desperately needs it. So I want to finish this morning talking about the community of grace. Finally, we should understand that there's a place to cultivate this grace, this peace, this truth, to learn about it. Grace grows in community, but not just any community. And this can be a hard thing for us to understand, a hard thing for us to swallow, a hard thing for us to want to accept. But when the Bible speaks of community, he's talking about the church. And we're not just talking about this, this stone building here. We're talking about all of you inside the building. And it's not just for Sunday. The same God who adopted us into his family intends that we should live together as a family. It's a difficult thing to accept and a difficult message because in modern times, the church of Jesus is, is marginalized into this caricature of what it's supposed to be. But even for those who desire to follow Jesus, many times the church is seen as an a la carte menu and not the total spiritual and lifestyle change that it's meant to be. Unfortunately, in the past, and even recently, we've created a Christianity where we can choose churches the same way most people choose restaurants, according to your individual tastes. By most estimates, and I was shocked when I read this and researched it, but they say by most estimates, there are over 25,000 Christian denominations worldwide. Denominations. Not churches, denominations. Separate little families within Christianities. So how can we expect to grow in grace when we're free to wander from one family to another? But it doesn't have to be like this. The Apostle Peter said this. He said, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do it with the strength that God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Christ Jesus. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. It's easy to miss the word grace in this passage, but you'll find it right in the middle where grace always should be. Our words and our actions are practical expressions of God's grace. God wants to show his grace through the, the love, the hospitality, and encouragement and service within this community of faith. We can extend grace to others precisely because we have received the grace of God. 
Among our families at home and among the family of God, we are called to be the caretakers of this grace. Too often we become only the consumers of grace, and that has led to 25,000 different denominations, a church for every taste and preference that consumers can imagine. But that's not what God desires for his church. <clears throat> you look closely at the passage we just read. The Apostle Peter calls us to use our gifts and service for one another. We steward the grace we have received by the way we speak, the way we act, and the way we live with one another in the church. Grace isn't just a gift. Grace isn't only a source of power and peace. Grace is also a stewardship. I would encourage you this week, when you're doing your own devotional time, try reading the parable of the talents. It's found in Matthew 25. And read it as a teaching about grace. Within this parable, the master leaves something of great worth with his servants. And if you substitute the word talent or gold for grace, you'll see that when he returns, he will look to see whether we have used his gift wisely. It's all about his grace. Let's all rise. When we look at the parable of the talents, we see that there is reward upon using talents wisely. How much more so will God judge us on how we use his grace? How we look upon his grace? How we use it to lift up others out of the pit that life has them in right now? In Matthew's version of this parable, the master not only praises the good steward, but he extends an invitation. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share in your master's happiness. And when we distribute the grace of God, we will receive his praise and something more, an invitation to enter into his joy. Let's all be found to be excellent stewards of his grace.